0: They might not have hair, but they really do care about
1: faith and life. Two bald pastors.
2: Welcome to Two Bald Pastors, a podcast about real faith and real life. I'm Jeff Sinobaldo.
1: and I'm Joe McGarry.
2: We are two follically challenged pastors serving in congregations of the New England Synod in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, or as we like to call it, the ELCA. Today, we have with us our Bishop Jim Hazelwood, Bishop of the New England Synod. Welcome. Woohoo.
0: Hello. Good to be with you. Ah, great to have you here.
1: Thanks for joining us. This is great.
0: I'm, I'm glad to be amongst other follically challenged individuals.
1: <laughs> it's, it's where it's at, really. <laughs> it's a new trend. No hair, goatee. You know, we, we're rocking it.
2: And glasses. And glasses.
1: And glasses. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, Bishop, and we are excited to have you on the podcast. Finally, we got you on the podcast, and we've been begging you for months, to, but uh, your schedule finally freed up for us, and uh, so this is great.
0: Well, I am happy to be uh, on the world-famous Bald Pastors podcast. Awesome. Now, are we inviting people to go on to iTunes and... And do uh, favorable reviews or critiques? Uh, and if so, is this also an opportunity for me to say really outrageous, controversial things so that
2: um, absolutely
1: spread across social media?
2: Definitely. Now is the – this is the right yes. platform for that. All right. Cool. Good.
1: <laughs> this is going to be fun. And <laughs> We've I'm... only had to censor one or two guests, so, <laughs> you know, keep it to a minimum. It's a little hard in the editing All process. Right. Well,
0: and we're also then recording this on my uh, – for my YouTube channel, uh, cool. Bishop on a Bike. So. We'll uh, we'll post it there for those people that want to see the dynamic video of this conversation. I, I don't know what it's like in filming a podcast, but it won't exactly be riveting video. But uh, hopefully, the conversation will be fruitful. So
1: definitely. So we wanted to start with you, healthy living, and and that is in multi direction of of living as individuals, living as leaders in the church, and living as congregations. So. Uh, Let's get just started with some healthy living as individuals and tell us a little bit about your journey into healthy living and and maybe a little bit about uh, your sabbatical journey recently.
0: Sure. So um, one of the things that I realized it in particular in the last five years, but more so uh, it's been a longer journey than that, but particularly recently is that nobody else is going to take care of us. And although I despise the term self-care because of the way it has often been propagated by various institutions um, in our church as kind of a very navel-gazing and excuse for not working hard, Um, that's not what I'm interested in at all. What I'm interested in is people's physical, mental, emotional well-being, and uh, probably I would add a fourth one that is one I'm recently working on, and that's financial well-being. For me, the the whole thing started or is kind of concretely centered around about two and a half years ago. I discovered that I was going to be a grandfather, and that combined with I had always gone to the gym, but I was the kind of guy that went to the gym whenever he felt like it, and I'd go and do a workout there I'd get a little perspiration going. And then I'd stop off at Starbucks for a latte and a chocolate chip cookie on the way home from the gym.
1: Nice. Um, well, you earned
0: it at that point. Yeah.
1: That's the way to do it, man. <laughs> I,
0: I, that, that was my attitude. Was like yep. I just worked, well, kind of, sort of, really not very hard, but hard enough to justify uh, another thousand calories um, of sugar and fat. I didn't understand what the problem was. But so around the time I, I learned I was going to be a grandfather, I also happened to meet somebody at a gym, and he just mentioned a book called Younger Next Year, and uh, they've written another book called Thinner This Year, and, and that book I, was one of those things that it was the right time, the right item at the right time. It just all came together. I think I read it over the course of, you know, two or three days. It was right before Christmas, mm-hmm. and basic premise of the book is... Don't eat crap and exercise every day. And there, I've just saved everybody the uh, $14.95 on purchasing the book. <laughs> and I just jumped in full bore, implemented basically healthy eating. It's not anything particularly radical. Any fourth grader can come up with the list of what's good for us and what's not. And, uh, and exercising six days a week. Now, for a lot of people, that could just simply be a half hour walk. You know, the, the other 23 and a half hours a day, you can stay on your lazy boy and watch TV or listen to podcasts. Um, but, you know, for the for the whole rest, for 30 minutes, you know, do something. Well, I went to the gym. I lost 30 pounds in about four or five months and uh, then got a bicycle. And so I've added bicycling to my exercise routine as well as eating. And, and it's been great. I feel I have so much more energy. It it helps with any stress levels that I have. I have a better outlook on life. Uh, my attitude is just vastly improved. And to go back to the grandfather thing is my goal is I'd like to be around to spend time with uh, my grandson. Yep. Yep. So that's that's basically how it all kind of got launched.
1: So are you looking at pretty much six days a week you are working out at this point or is it... I know you have a busy schedule.
0: I'm about at about five days right yeah, these d- right now. And as the weather here in New England um, improves pretty much from about April through, depending on weather, November, December, I can be out on a bicycle most days. And I've also, I've, I also added swimming and I have a pretty light strength training thing that I do once or twice a week. So, so the whole thing, but it's five, it's, it's five usually one-hour slots is about what it works out to. So five hours a week.
2: That's great. Well, I followed your lead. I was inspired, and uh, I was doing the incremental gain a pound or two here and there just by not changing anything and uh, also metabolism changing as I was not getting any younger each year I discovered with the help of another friend who went on a program, did something similar. So I've knocked a bunch of weight down and exercise a lot more and sleep better and feel better and have more energy and all those things too. So thanks for taking the lead on that first.
0: Yeah, it's, it's been really interesting how I did this and with no intention of converting anybody else. It was all work on myself. Yep. And the number of people that have responded is far more than any, anything I've told people to do.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad legacy, really. That sounds...
0: <laughs> right. Well, he was bishop for a while. I don't know. The church went down the tubes. But a lot of us got a lot healthier.
2: <laughs> right. you would have, like, bicycle church. That would be fun.
0: Yeah. Well, I did a video with uh, Laura Everett about yeah. uh, that, and I know you, you folks have had Laura on uh, the, the podcast. I, I mean, you know, uh, one, the one critique I've heard from people who have said variations on my wording of what they've said is, you know, a lot of what you talk about is willpower or requires intentionality, a decision to actually do it. And, um, at first I was just, I'm, and I still am a little confused by this criticism, but by my, my answer just finally is, is yeah,
1: right, right.
0: It, it, you have to decide to do this and it has to be a conscious decision. And I know keeping up with the pattern is difficult. So everybody's different. I mean, somebody, some people are going to need a partner Some people can do it on their own. Some people are going to need to go to a class. Some people are going to sign up for something where they have to pay money to a trainer. I mean, everybody's got their own way of doing it. But ultimately, it does come down to you have to decide you want to do it. And for me, I've always been if I've got the bigger long term vision of Mm -hmm. where I want to be, then that allows me to make those short term sacrifices in, in service to that larger vision. So yeah, this is, this is about willpower and, and discipline and, gee, all those things that uh, St. Paul talks about in the uh, New Testament that uh, Lutherans actually get a little scared of when we start to add these expectations to how people are supposed to live, but right. at least for me, that's, that's the way this worked.
1: Yep,
2: I found the difficult part is keeping with it. It wasn't hard to decide to do it, and it wasn't hard to do the program when it was spelled out. It's hardest when the only one really keeping you accountable is yourself. And right. you have to decide in the morning. Yeah, okay, I will get up and exercise, or I will. I won't eat that donut, and it really looks good, even though yep. my kids have them.
1: <laughs> and, uh,
2: you know, it's it's hard, and uh, it is a challenge. And to actually decide to do it is yeah. uh, is part of the deal. That's discipline. So you just came back from sabbatical a few months ago. I'd love to hear. I know Joe would too. Uh, just kind of things you. Experienced on your sabbatical, and what has what have your what was your takeaway now that you're kind of back to work, so to speak?
0: So I set about um, for sabbatical with a project around the theme of accountability, and the idea is how do you create a culture of accountability? And I, to be honest with you, I'm still trying to figure that one out because I think it's it's really challenging. And then maybe in the end, ultimately, we're back to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is, you know, we need to make a decision to, that we want to be accountable to ourselves, to God, to, uh, you know, our spouse, a uh, friend, whatever it may be. But what that did was it led it led me down a really interesting rabbit hole that was kind of surprising that I did not intend on. We had a couple of weeks where it was really nice and relaxing. We were We rented a house uh, through Airbnb in Southern California, and even though it was the wettest winter that they've ever had in California in 40 years, (laughs) I mean, for a New Englander, it's like, okay, it's raining outside, but it's 62 degrees. This is a good day. Uh, Exactly. Um, And so um, I I started to do a little bit of kind of like, you know, I'm 58 now, you know, you start to think a little bit differently about retirement. So I read this book by this guy named Chris Hogan, uh, on retirement, and it was basically mostly financial planning. But but the heart of it was, which really connected to me for me is, you know, you need to have an inspirational picture in your mind, uh, a vision uh, in your mind as to what you want retirement to be, and it, it dealt with a lot of different aspects of it. But one of the big mm-hmm. focuses was on the financial piece, and uh, the the number of Americans that are not ready for retirement. Is just, the percentages are huge, and I can't think of what they are, but um, it's really frightening. And that led me down a whole path of looking at finances. And so this is kind of in the financial health aspect of what I've been um, recently exploring. Uh, and I discovered two resources that were really, really helpful. One is The Minimalist. And uh, these are two guys that, oh, I'm drawing a blank on their names, but if you just go to dot Com or org. Basically, it's two guys that have discovered, gee, life is meaningful without lots of stuff, and mm-hmm. let's uh, let's focus on people and experiences rather than uh, acquiring things. And uh, I, that again really caught my attention. I picked up a, an old book by Richard Foster, who's a Quaker, called The Freedom of Simplicity, and which is basically kind of the Christian foundation for living a, a lifestyle that's fairly simple. Now, I still have a car. We still have a house. We still eat three meals a day. Yes, I have pancakes. And uh, although we try to do whole wheat and maple syrup. Anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, but, you know, so, you know, but I, I mean, I went through my library. I sold half of my library. Uh, most of them were seminary books that didn't really fetch a lot on Amazon, come to think of it. But uh, held a big garage sale, um, got rid of a lot of stuff and sold my motorcycle because I do bicycling now, so I don't really ride the motorcycle. Um, we're, in a, we're in a program that's really intentional about paying, down, paying off all our debt, eventually with the goal of, of getting our mortgage as the last one to get that paid off early. It's going to be a couple of years to do that. And just, just really kind of like saying, well, what is the essential, really important stuff of life? And focusing in that direction rather than the culture's focus Uh, which is, I need more. And if you ask most people, everybody wants 10% more. They want 10% more of a salary increase, uh, not to touch on any controversial discussions at Senate Assembly or anything. They want 10% bigger car, 10% bigger house, 10% time. You know, everybody wants 10%. The problem is once you get 10%, what does everybody want after a couple of weeks?
1: Ten percent. I want
0: ten yeah. percent more. <laughs> it just becomes this vicious, vicious cycle. Well, what if? And so I've been trying to go. Okay, what does it take? Well, what about if I go the other way? Let's try to decrease my life complexity by ten percent and, mm. and kind of go in that direction. So it's like a reverse tithe on on time and energy. So anyway, that's a long answer to. Yeah, I like it. What came out of sabbatical for me?
1: Nice. Does that mean a tiny house in, in your future someday? Well, for me, it would have to be a tall tiny house.
0: Right. We looked at those tiny houses, uh, at least in the, in the movie, and I've been online. It's like, I just, I'm sorry, that's not, I can't do that. I'm too claustrophobic.
2: Our daughter Mia is really into the show about tiny houses and wants one. We're like, well, you can park it in our yard when you get one. That'll be fine.
1: <laughs> my wife and daughter say they want a tiny house. And I said, what about me? And they said, you have too much stuff. So I think I need to, oh, to work culprit, on
2: them. Joe, okay. I am,
1: I am, I am.
0: Yeah, I'm looking actually behind your office there. Yeah, you can't see nothing. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> so has your approach to the the work changed? I mean, I know you have, you were a pastor for 20 years, and then you, you went into the bishop's office. I'm sure your perspective changed from that. But since you've been in that position, has what, what, have you, what do you see differently over the course of the last several years? Or That's a huge question.
0: If there's anybody out there that's listening to this and they're in a, synod or a diocese someplace, and they're thinking, I'd like to be a bishop someday. Give me a call. Uh, (laughs) It really is unlike what I thought it would be. And actually now I'm to the point where I don't even know what I thought it would be. Nick Nisley, who's the bishop in in the Episcopal Diocese of Rhode Island, said that, you know, you'll probably use about 30% of what you used in the parish. That's what you'll take into this new work. And I, I even think that that's high. I I do so, other than preaching, I do very little of what a parish pastor does. You know, so maybe a quarter of it or something like that. I think to be a good bishop, you have to have stamina. I think that's probably the number one quality. And that's not to say that you don't have to have that as a parish pastor. And I did parish ministry for 25 years and loved it most of the time. And then some of the time I liked it. And then a very small amount of time, I just really despised it. I mean, there were just times that would just dro- drove me up the wall, not the parishioners that I served. I loved <laughs> all of them equally, you know, right. so, you know, so, but as a bishop, you really got to have stamina. And the, and the thing you have to have stamina around is you are constantly having to say no to people. Or at a minimum, say, is that really a good idea? Or you know, and to really get into a very critical conversation with people, that wears on me. I don't know about it. maybe other bishops can do it a lot easier, but I get tired of having to be the adult in the room all the time. Yeah, sure. So that's the most challenging part of it. Um, there's other things that are challenging. Obviously, the times that we live in. Um, are are you know very challenging, but there's great opportunities too. So you know we can talk about that. But uh, but I think that that's the piece, the stamina of having to be the one that says, and whether that's to my staff, whether that's to somebody that's not acting properly, whether that's some Looney Tune idea that somebody comes up with. I mean, it's a it's a whole varied kind of thing. So I go through most days just like saying well, I don't know. Well, no. And it, it's not that I always say no, but it's like, you know, let's look at that. Let's think mm-hmm. about that. Um, it's, that's what's taxing. That's the stamina
1: mm-hmm. piece. So be a healthy leader. You talk about having endurance. What are some other characteristics you think is important to be either a pastor in the church or a lay leader?
0: Um, I think that we are constantly under pressure to intentionally or unintentionally forget that we are in the jesus work Mm. and that we there are so many factors that push us away from that in 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 our work if you're a lay person in your daily life you know it's just like what am i called to be who am i called to be what what is my ministry as i work at this factory what is my ministry as i'm a school teacher for a a church leader in a congregational setting you're on a church council what is the what is why are we doing this why are we about this work of the church Um, And we are always, always being challenged uh, with other goals and other agendas that distract us. And we need to come back again and again to why. So we are called to be disciples and makers of disciples. What does that mean? What does that look like? And every time you start that conversation, or every time I've started that conversation with a group of people, somebody to unintentionally often hijack the agenda to, you know, well, we need more money. Well, we need more people. Well, you know, and all of those, yep. you know, we got to fix the building or, you know, whatever it may be. And I'm not discounting those, but we've got to make the primary thing um, about Jesus and then how we are disciples ourselves and how we're going to help other people be disciples. And we forget that all the time in the church. Yeah, yep.
1: And I think sometimes we talk about doing... The ministry and, and about Jesus, and and then you do hear the what about this and what about that. We can't we can't worry about the Jesus part if we don't have any money to do ministry. But what I like to try to remind people is, you, you do what you're called to. You, you figure out that why, and you, and you do that, and the rest will take care of itself. And most likely, from my experience, it, it does take care of itself.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a great. A uh, book uh, by Simon Sinek. Um, yep. I think it's just called Why, or Ask Why, or something Starts like. start with Why. Yep. Start with Why. That's it. It's, yep. if, you don't, if you don't want to read the book, there's a TED Talk, and you know that's that's constantly. Uh, I get a lot of questions around stewardship kinds of things and generosity thing, and more and more I'm saying, okay, so you want to have a, a successful fall stewardship appeal, why? You know, and then and go through the multiple layers that you need to go through to get to the ultimate why. Because m- I think most of us, we don't know why. Right. Most of our congregations don't know why they want to do a, why do you want 10% more income next year? You
2: because know? they want to meet their budget. That's probably right.
0: And exactly. Oh, that's yeah. Different. Just everybody is out there. And that's just so motivating. I want to help my church meet its budget. <gasps> <Right>. I mean, <laughs> you know, that worked in another time period. In a particularly post-World War II time period um, with generations that are my father-in-law's age, he's 93. Yeah. We don't have a lot of 90-year-olds in our congregation. Well, that was the, the builder generation. The, the, Tom Brokaw called them the greatest generation. That's how they were oriented. You, the younger and younger you go on that scale, or the less appealing meeting the church budget is to people. So it's what you want to do. How's lives do you want to change? What's the impact that you want to have? Yeah. People need to get, you get clear on that. It changes a lot of things. It makes it a lot easier. But it's hard to answer the question is the, is the really challenging part. And you guys, I'm not saying anything you two all don't, don't already know. You've had these conversations in your congregations.
2: It always helps when somebody else says it, though.
1: That's my job. <laughs>
2: and a fine job you're doing.
1: Yes. I think one of the things you encourage us to do as leaders as well, and something that Jeff and I have talked about before is uh, working as a team or working with others and not kind of being the lone wolf out there. I know how easy it is to be that lone wolf, especially with me here, not many churches in my area, Lutheran churches in my area. And it really takes intentionality to go out and connect with others, not only, in person, but also you know, through social media and, and phone calls and that sort of thing. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of, of connecting with others and working together and not being uh, by ourselves out there and some of your experiences, maybe a story that you've experienced that in, in the past and how that has affected your ministry?
0: Sure. None of us have all the gifts. And the, the arrogance that we would have to think that we have it all to do this work, um, often gets people in trouble. More and more, I'm just finding that uh, I need a group of people around me. And whether that's people in the congregation that you're serving, um, you know, who are the trusted people you can talk, talk through things, get feedback on your sermons. Uh, anybody that's ever tried to do any kind of a capital campaign, you know, you know the whole process of, of engaging and, and talking with other people and working with folks, um, you, you need to have those those partners. So yeah, you've got to be a team player. Uh, I don't think you can get anything done that's of, of lasting value if you don't include other, other folks. That's um, just... That's just part of the world we're in. And most of our kids that have gone through the more recent models of education, a lot of it's project based. A lot of it's, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, so you got, you know, you've got school aged children. You know, it's it's like, well, I'm on a project with, you know, so so and so and so and so and so. You know, it's like four or five kids working on the same project. Well, that's kind of, uh, there's a real value that you learn both the the task of the project you need to produce, but it's also the process of, you know, well, what do you do about that person in your group who's not doing any work? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, I tell you. Uh, you're going to face that in life, and you're going to have to figure out how right. to handle that one. Um, right. so, yeah, I think everything is team-based. I really wish that our congregations were in positions to have multiple staff. That's usually not till you get to a larger size, but uh, you get a, a team of people humming and, and focused on a similar direction. It makes a, it's multiple, it makes a big, big difference. So I think, Joe, what you were saying about, you know, you go out in the community, you go to meet people. I mean, you're creating that for yourself because, you know, you don't have that, you know, and yet you have to build it. Right. Um, both informal and, and formal networks. And in my experience, the people that get in trouble, 100 percent of the time, they're lone rangers mm-hmm. and they they whether it's men or women seems to be more male than a female phenomenon, from my observations and you, you get isolated, you get alone, you're not connected, and you start to make stupid decisions. Uh, you don't rely on people for honest feedback. Nobody's holding you accountable. And it's just never, it's never good.
2: Nope. Not to be generational, but do you see in younger leaders a more willingness to uh, be collaborative?
0: My observation is I think I don't know that I could say that. Because I think it's I think it actually has more to do with family of origin stuff than it has to do with generation. I think that people that grew up in families of, you know, where the family dynamic was a less um, just more of a team oriented kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. I'll give an example from my own life, because I I, this is a, a not a naturally learned thing for me. Because I had a family whose theme song was Don't Fence Me In, which was a Gene Autry song from like the 30s or something like that, because you know, my mother just, you know, really loved uh, that song. But it also is, a, it's a, you know, it's a cowboy song. It's representative of kind of the West, uh, American independence and self-initiation. Um, all of which are fantastic qualities and qualities that I really appreciate. What I had to learn when I got into the ministry is that would only take me so far. Mm-hmm. And I needed to learn how to work with others, be engaged with other people. So I think it's more family of origin. And, okay. you, and I use myself as an example as a person who that was a skill I have had to learn and continue to have to learn. So yeah, that's, that's more, those are my thoughts on the, on the generational question. The whole generational, this is kind of a side note, the generational topic is really interesting because one of the questions that, that I wonder a lot is when people say, oh, millennials are like this or yeah. boomers are like that. What I'm wondering is, are, is, what we're seeing, is it more developmental than it is generational? Is, sure. is it more have to do with stage of life yeah, And it is, you know, let's blanket a generation with kind of, you know, these are the four qualities of what millennials are like, and these are the four qualities of what boomers are like. I mean, there are clearly some things that we see, some patterns. So I'm not discounting the whole generational thing, but I just kind of start to ask that, that question around, is, is this a kind of a life stage question for these different cohorts than it is a generational phenomenon? Hmm. But that can be another podcast.
1: that'd be interesting that'd be good so let's move into a healthy church when we talk about a healthy church i've heard you say a couple of times that even in our own synod we have about 180 congregations about 40 are in critical condition 40 maybe doing really well and everybody else is kind of in the middle somewhere so can you talk a little bit about that some of your observations and what does a healthy church look like
0: Well, so the reason I like the term healthy church is as opposed to some of the other language that's out there that is like sustainable, because that implies that it's all about um, finances, butts and bucks. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. The the number one critical difference between healthy churches and unhealthy churches, and it's not an either or, it's a spectrum, is that healthy churches are externally focused. Unhealthy churches are internally focused are you more concerned and do you spend more time and energy fighting over where the decaf pitcher should be should be located on Sunday morning during coffee hour or are you talking more about what's the best way to help the family that lives in the apartment complex across the street from our church and yep. so just that example alone, people will often say, in fact, it's in an assembly, I said something about how many of you know who your neighbor is, right? Don't know how many of you don't know who your neighbor is. I mean, I was like, wow, it was like 30% of the assembly raised their hand. Now, I don't know, they might have been thinking about their own home. So they don't know the neighbor across the street or, or next to them. Or were they thinking about their church? Do they know the people that actually live across the street from their building? So that's an example of, of being externally focused. Um, yeah. It also feeds into everything you do in your congregation, how welcoming you are on a Sunday morning to, to, to show up. I mean, there are some of our congregations in our synod where, you know, I show up on a Sunday morning. It's really obvious who I am. I'm carrying, you know, my all, I'm dressed in clerics. <laughs> right, right. I've got my John Nicketh miter on, you know, <laughs> and uh, maybe actually should probably be more Angel Moraro since he's yeah. the one that's the bigger advocate of that. Um, we should let John off the hook a little bit here. But, uh, you know, it's obvious who I am. And some I, I go into some congregations and people are energized and enthusiastic and welcoming to me. And I think it's often about me, but then as I kind of make my way into the building and over the corner of my eye, I see, oh, well, they're doing that to everybody. Yeah, cool. And then I've also gone to some churches dressed like, and it's really obvious who I am. And I mean, literally no one talks to me. Now, maybe, <laughs> maybe it's because they know I am the bishop and they don't want to <laughs> talk. But, uh, but I suspect in these situations where it's happened, that's what they're like all the time. Yeah. Well, you know, so those are just so that's just basically a lot of words around. Are you externally focused or internally focused? And this is not just churches. You talk to anybody that runs a business and they're going to say the same thing. But we're called to by Jesus to be in this work. It's not about us. We are called to be servants. We are called to engage the world. We are called to serve our neighbors and to think about Those people um, that are not currently here, uh, but will be. There's a great Bonhoeffer quote, The church is the church only when it exists for others, not dominating, but helping and serving. It must tell men and women of every calling what it means to live for Christ, to exist for others. So the church is only the church when it exists for others. And I, I mean, I really believe that.
2: Yeah, Joe and I have talked a few times about uh, trying to identify what neighbor is and uh, neighborhood in particular, especially in a commuter culture and how what a challenge that can be. But uh, I've come down to it, it's it got to be your street address of your church because that's, that's where you gather. I mean, people come from all over. This is yep. where we collectively have planted. So we need to say that this is where we're investing uh, in those people around us. Yeah, it's good. You got to walk around. You got to drive around. You got to pay attention.
0: I know, Joe, you're a member of, is it uh, the Rotary or Lions Club or something? The Rotary, like that? yeah. Rotary, you know, I mean, and so Jeff, I know you're involved in stuff. I mean, I, I coached soccer. That's how we met lots of people. You know, the folks that really introduced uh, this as a concept for for their staff were, um, is uh, Bill Hybels at Willow Creek. I never realized this, but I heard an interview with one of his staff people and said, it is a requirement to be on this staff that you spend, and I can't remember the percentage, but it was significant. It was 15 or 20 percent of your time with people, with essentially with non-church-going people. And, and what is it? You know, And it could be something that you wanted to do. It could be if you like to golf, that's fine but you were not you had to spend 20% or 20 whatever it was a large percentage mm-hmm. of your time golfing with people who are not members of that congregation you could be at a gym you could be wherever it is serving in the community cuz it it is over hanging out at church and any layperson that criticizes i just heard of this this was like last Thursday about this one of our Synod Council people went to a congregation and to just kind of give a hi. I'm from the Synod Council. We're not the evil empire. Look, we really do have—we uh, breathe like you, and we're glad that you're part of the, the Synod. And, and during the coffee hour, somebody pulled him aside and was critiquing because this person said the pastor of that congregation, never in the office. You know, he's always, you know, out in the community. And it's like, give me the phone. I'll call him up. I mean, it's like, yeah, that's where the pastor's supposed to be should not be in the office, should not spend, you know, the office, take the chair out of the office so you don't sit in it. Yeah. I mean, obviously we do have office things that we need to do, but oh my gosh, you know, most pastors, five hours is the most you should spend at your office. And that includes working on a sermon. Parenthetically, who came up with this idea that you're supposed to spend 30 hours a week working on a sermon? Holy cow, if pastors are spending 30 hours a week preparing a sermon— that better be better than the Sermon on the Mount. Man, I mean, that <laughs> thing better rock. Not better, that is better, the most awesome sermon in the history of humankind, 30 hours a week.
1: Jeff spends about 10 minutes on his. So
2: I don't remember the, who it was, but it was one of the <laughs> former editors of the Christian Century. And somebody asked him, you know, how long do you spend on a sermon? And his answer was, some I've been working on my whole life. I like that answer.
1: Right. There you, go. There you no, go. That's good. So to play devil's advocate, and what if some someone says, you know, it's great to go out into the community, but we need to focus on getting our members connected first. We need to focus on our own members before we go out into the community. Um, how would you respond to something like that?
0: I would say to that person, why? Why do we need to have our members connected? And just kind of be the two-year-old asking why for a while. Because, I mean, wh- what, why are we getting our members together? Okay, if we're going to get our members together because we're going to talk about and plan, and not just talk about, but plan for a way in which we're going to serve the community, yeah, I'm all for getting our members together. But if you just want to get the members together for, for what? For what purpose? For them to get to know one another? There might be some value in that. But the way it's often phrased is an either or or a sequential. Like we first need to have our members have at least 30 potluck suppers together. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we will be prepared to go into the community. You know, that's a really interesting idea. My life experience is, is it, it's not true. It doesn't. Uh, that's not the way it works. Right.
2: Do you think part of it is kind of this whole consumer mentality? I mean, we're still trying to overcome that in the church quite a bit.
0: I, I think it's that we're lazy. Yeah. I think we, I think we all know damn well what Jesus wants us to do. And we just don't want to do it to quote Stephen Colbert. It's really clear. You read the Bible and you cannot tell me that there is not a preferential preference or option for the poor, the underserved, the refugee, welcome, the stranger, the clothing, feeding, advocating for just policy. I mean, has anybody ever read the Bible? I mean, it's really obvious what we're called to do, and people make up all this other bullshit, about which is basically it comes down to the fact that we don't want to do that, because why don't we want to tithe? I actually gave the answer away by the way I phrased the question. I don't want to do it. Why? Well, because I'm you know, afraid. I want to keep my money, you know, um, it's expensive living today and so forth and so on. I'll tell you right now, I mean, you know, Lisa and I, we've been tithing for probably 15 years on a middle-class income. And don't, people make up all this, the reason they can't tithe is probably because they're, you know, leveraged beyond uh, belief. They're driving a Thirty-five thousand-dollar vehicle, and you're paying, you know, six hundred dollars a month on the mortgage. So all of these things that people do. Now I'm being much more honest with you guys because I'm forgetting that this is actually being broadcast to the world, <laughs> and I'm get all kinds of mail. And you know, We're just letter. a
2: couple guys drinking coffee, <laughs> coffee
0: just know, hanging out, and record <laughs> it and put it on the internet for the world to see. But, you know, I mean, I obviously I answer these questions more diplomatically, although less and less as I go on, when people come up with all these excuses, like which was what that is, we should first take care of our own before we go out. Well, you know, my experience is most people come to life when they start to serve others and they, they get more energy. Yeah. So I just think, you know, we've had it really good in America since World War II, been an expanding economy. I uh, Granted, I'll admit that in the last 15 years, that's been tougher for certain populations. But for the most part, you compare us to the rest of the world, we've had it cushy. And yep. so we, yep. we got lazy. Mm-hmm. But maybe the good things about the times that we're in is it's going to call us back to be the church.
2: Anything coming up you want to roll
0: out? or uh, you know? I mean, there's little stuff. I just had a meeting a little while ago with some folks from the Conservation and Sustainability Interfaith Partnership. So we're talking about this winter doing a series of events in New England for all congregations, synagogues, mosques, mm-hmm. basic houses of worship that want to learn about conservation, things they can do in their church buildings, many of them at no or very, very little cost. In fact, they were telling me about one church that realized that they were paying taxes in a certain municipality on their utility bill, and this group met with them. It took 15 minutes of a phone call and a letter, and they got seven years of taxes back. So they got this windfall of like $15,000. But it's also, you know, if you want to look at solar panels, so kind of tie that in with our whole effort uh, that's connected to, you know, our green team and, you know, doing our part in terms of climate change to uh, not just be the stone throwers yelling at the legislators for not doing their job, but also for us taking responsibility for our, our role and our participation in a, in a carbon-based uh, energy economy and so that we have a little bit more integrity that when we speak out uh, in terms of these things. So that's one thing. That'll be in February of 2018. Right now, I'm kind of in the middle of digesting the um, Sanctuary Synod resolution. I've gotten, I've gotten some emails and letters from people that are not happy. <laughs> I mean, that resolution passed pretty overwhelmingly. Oh, that yeah. Was, yeah, it did. I was like, I'm thinking like three quarters, 80%. I right. don't know you guys it feels were it like
2: Feels like more to me than that. Yeah,
0: maybe it's okay. So even above 80, maybe 90%. Yep. And yep. we had 15 minutes of debate and nobody came to the microphone in opposition to it. So, you know, it was pretty clear the assembly was all for it. Well, we have a number of people who have, on the good side, they have some questions about how can you claim that sanctuary synod, and what does that mean? Does that mean that all of our congregations are required now to house uh, undocumented persons? You know No, that's not what a resolution is. So there's a little bit of misinformation in terms of what people think. So, I've, mm-hmm. so I'm spending some time pastoral letter. Mm-hmm. Uh, saying, okay, this is what it means, this is what it doesn't mean, and to help people understand that. I mean, I think that's an important issue that we're facing, and maybe that is an opportunity for the church to exist for others. And to go back to that Bonhoeffer quote, I think people just need to be smart about it. And there are some of our congregations, one in particular in the Boston area, Uni-Loo in Cambridge, that they've, they've spent a lot of time thinking about this, planning, talking with legal counsel, talking with agencies, talking with, they're in a coalition with a lot of other faith groups. So, I mean, they've really done it well. Um, I have to really hand it to them. Um, they're kind of the model for, for people that want to do this. This is not something that you just wake up one morning and say, okay, well, we're going to do this. I think mostly what that sanctuary resolution is going to do is it's going to stimulate some conversation about uh, the, the whole subject of, of uh, immigration and refugees, and what's the church's role. And also, I think it's also going to lead to a conversation which is going to be really fascinating in terms of kind of the whole church-state question, yeah. You know, which is, you know, so yes, we are law-abiding citizens, and yes, we are called, you know, in that whole debate that Luther had, uh, you know, Luther really came on the side of law and order. I mean, you could really make—somebody right. could make a case, although I think they would be maybe pushing it too far— for that kind of thing. But I mean, Luther was, was not interested in um, too much rebellion, or he was concerned about open rebellion. But at the other hand, you know, clearly, uh, as, as was pointed out to us, uh, Luther was the beneficiary of sanctuary. Um, right. The Bible might not have been translated into the vernacular had somebody not provided sanctuary for Martin Luther. Yep. So I think that could be a really interesting conversation if we can structure yep. it in a way where we can have a civil an intelligent conversation um, rather than just people from various political perspectives throwing stones at at one another, because if we're going to do that, then, you know, what's the point?
1: When you talk about that why question, imagine if the Lutherans in new England were known for being a sanctuary church and what would that mean for revitalization in many of our churches? if, If we were able to come together on that and we have as a Senate assembly, but really find a way to live into that and say, you know, this is what is possible if, if we become this church and, and imagine what it could do and, and really stimulate a lot, many of our congregations that might not have a reason to exist, so to speak.
0: I would agree with the caveat, as long as we understand that all of our congregations are going to be at different points on participating in what Means, oh yeah, Um, and that's That's the main thing thing. that I need to emphasize when I write about this sanctuary resolution. Is this is not an edict from on high. This is not a a standard requirement. This is, I I would say, this is more of a. I got to come up with the right word. I don't have it right now, but basically, this is like a little prod. You know, it's like okay. So, for instance, you know, at one congregation, they might want to and feel called to house undocumented persons, Um, and another congregation, it might be. We're going to do a book study on, you know, uh, welcoming the stranger. What does that mean? And another congregation, it might be we're going to do a series of forums uh, with our local city council people, and we're going to do three weeks, and we're going to bring in a city council person one time, and then a maybe a director of a nonprofit another time, and then uh, maybe somebody that works with, you know, refugees in our community. You know, maybe it'll be that kind of a more of an educational slant. Other people, it would be, you know, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services or Lutheran World Relief. Uh, We're going to, you know, do offerings uh, for them because we like the work that they're doing around the world. So I think if we can see it that way, it can become a a more broadly embraced thing. Because, you know, just uh, we all know our congregations are in very different settings, and I can see some of them as they have been. Being sanctuary congregations in terms of providing housing for undocumented persons, but I also know other congregations. There's just no way that that's going to happen in the near future, and that mm-hmm. it's going to take a long time. And Lu got to that place after a long period of study. This is not something they decided three right. weeks ago. You know, so this right. is like multi-year kind of process and a lot of thoughtfulness and, and so forth and so on. So that's just kind of. Uh, the, the piece I want to add is, is to what Sanctuary Synod means.
2: Cool. And what I like about that is it's about, you know, how do we, uh, to go back to earlier points, live our faith out in the world and connect with our neighbors around us. Because, I mean, that's the other great heritage we have is it's, we're out of the monastery now. Right. Living faith out in the world and we yeah. can all answer that in a different way. And that's important as, yeah. as much as it is a challenge.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is it is a challenge. Well, this was a good
2: conversation with you guys. This was great. Thank you.
0: It's not nearly as bad as what other guests told me it would be. Oh, I mean, it's true.
1: <laughs> oh, you mean victims? victims. <laughs> yeah, you've
0: had, you've had uh, a quite, quite a variety of series uh, of people, so it's been good.
1: Yeah, we've really enjoyed it, and we want to thank you for coming on. And uh, if someone wanted to reach out to you, what are some best ways to, to do that?
0: Um, I think the, probably the best and the easiest place would be my website, which is bishoponabike.com. From there, they can find me through various social media, um, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I am on Snapchat, but the only reason I'm on Snapchat is because my grandson is uh, featured on Snapchat. So I just have one Relationship. I'm not interested in doing Snapchat with anybody else. I I, I want to see cute pictures of my grandson smearing lotion all over his bedroom as his mother screams at him.
1: Oh, that's wonderful.
0: That's
2: (laughs) awesome.
1: Well, again, thank you very much. And we want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of the podcast and like. Uh, the Bishop said you can go on iTunes and give us a rating and review. We are looking for those, and maybe we'll feature uh, a review if you are able to leave one on a future podcast. We are thankful for your participation, and once again, uh, you can reach Jeff and I on Facebook, facebook.com backslash two bald pastors or our website, TwoBaldPastors.com. And we are the Two Bald Pastors, helping you connect your faith with your life, I am Joe McGarry
2: and I'm Jeff Senebaldo.
1: Thank you very much and have a blessed day. Bye now. They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two bald pastors.
2: You should know that that is how my grandfather used to always end every phone conversation. He'd say, Bye now. That's why. <laughs> Amen to that. Amen.
1: Okay, we don't want to hear me sing.
2: <laughs> hey, we're 10 minutes in and we haven't
1: even started. So to be a healthy leader in the church, you, you, you talk about stamina. Stan- oh, no, I can't say that. Stamina. No. Stamina. Stamina.
2: There you go. There you,
1: go. <laughs> you talk about stamina. <laughs> we can edit that part out.